chapter 4. <clears throat> please, I should say please, please turn to John chapter 4. <clears throat> we took a, um, a brief break last week from this passage uh, to look at the priorities and the challenges that we currently face as a church. And I would just add, if you, if you missed that, um, the sermon is available on our website, or you can download it from iTunes, however you listen. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to sermons that you've missed. But this morning, we turn our attention back to John 4 and to Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well. And really, the people of a certain Samaritan town who come to him. I'd like to read this entire section again to remind um, us, to remind you of this scene. Um, there are many twists and turns in the conversation. But before we read it, I, I want to kind of remind you of uh, how we have broken down kind of as an outline this entire encounter. I, I've said this probably each week, but I think it's good for a reminder. And so if you remember a few weeks ago when we started chapter 4, I said it's divided into kind of three different sections. There's the, the conversation, the exposition, and then the response. So the first section, again, it was conversation. It's really verses 1 through 27. And then we spent several weeks looking closely at Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well. And then the second section, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it's actually verses 31 to 38, and I, I called that section the exposition because Jesus has explained, he has exposed to his disciples what this whole scene means. He taught them exactly what is going on here. That is, that the work that, that he was doing, and to a certain extent, the work that this Samaritan woman was doing as well, was preparing the way for the spread of the gospel. And he told them to behold, to look up and see, uh, people are ready to be saved. They're, they're hungry for the bread of life. They're thirsty for living waters. And then, of course, the final section of this passage is actually these two smaller sections put together. This is where we find ourselves today. Verses 28, 29, and 30, and then uh, down in verse 39 to 42, and Really, we're calling it the response. This is both the response of the, of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan townspeople to the words of Christ. Now, as I said, the conversations in this passage, they seem to kind of meander around a bit. And so let's read it again. And, and as we do, as I read verses 1 through 42... Pay special attention to the words that Jesus says, because it is to his claims that everyone here is ultimately responding. So pay special attention to what Jesus says. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you uh, worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, but you have, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Pray with me. Lord, this response is my prayer that this is our response, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Confirm this belief in our hearts. Strengthen our faith today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ultimately, um, everyone will respond to one central claim of Jesus Christ. It is the same claim upon which he's promised to build his church. And history, 2,000 years so far, has seen this played out, right? This is, of course, the question that he asks of his disciples in in Matthew chapter 16. And so beginning in verse 13, we read this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this important question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is, the, this is the central claim of Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Is he who he claims to be? Is he who Simon Peter thinks that he is? I've said this many times before. I've shared this quote. Um, C.S. Lewis, he makes a good argument in, in what is known as his trilemma. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this. I've said this several times. It'll be familiar to you. 
He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, namely this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, this is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So how do you respond to Jesus' claims? Verse 26 of John chapter 4 here is the central claim that ultimately all of the people here are responding to, to. It is the claim, I who speak to you am he, that is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. I would also argue that this claim, that Jesus is the Christ, is the central claim to which every human being will eventually respond to. Because as Philippians chapter 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the ultimate response. But we need to back up just a a little bit and look at this first response of the Samaritan woman and then the response of the Samaritan townspeople. Let's begin with the woman at the well. Uh, What is she responding to? What is she responding to? Well, over the course of their conversation, really the first 30 verses, 27 verses or so of this chapter, Jesus has claimed to be the source of living water. He has said that his living water leads to eternal life. He's also confronted in a a very matter-of-fact way her sinful lifestyle. He's corrected her faulty view of worship as a Samaritan, teaching her that, in fact, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. He has said that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then to top it all off, Jesus has claimed to be the hope, not only of the people of Israel, as we would expect him to claim, but even of her people as well, even the Samaritans. Look again, beginning at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, before we look at her final response, look at her chain of responses throughout this passage throughout their conversation i'll pick them out for you verse 9 we could call this response uh, incredulous surprise How, how is it that you a jew ask for a drink from me a woman of samaria verses 11 and 12 she says this sir You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. We might say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Verse 15, we can see clearly that she has an earthly desire. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's defensive in verse 17. 
She says, I have no husband. The way that she says this, we, we might say, mind your own business. It's none of your concern. She's changing the subject as quickly as she can. And when Jesus points out the truth, she responds first with curiosity. Verse 19, I perceive that you're a prophet. But that quickly leads her to a, to a theological response in verse 20 when she says, our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Until finally we get to verse 25 when she reveals that she actually has some hope. Do you see the hope in her voice in verse 25? I know that Messiah is coming. Now, just as kind of an aside at this point, as we think about her collection of responses to Christ, back in verses 21 and 22, Jesus tells her that, that as a Samaritan, she believes wrong things. Samaritans believed wrong things. They did not accept anything except for the first five books as being a part of Scripture. He corrects this and he actually says salvation is from the Jews. See, she had an, she had an incomplete view of the coming Messiah. In many, many ways, she had incorrect theology. We could say she had unsound doctrine. Yet Christ was here presenting himself to her, offering her salvation. Notice how he does this. In verse 26, he he simply presents himself, I who speak to you am he. I'm the hope that you've been waiting for. Don't Don't let theological disagreements disrupt the sharing of the gospel. Don't let your your theological disagreements disrupt your sharing of the gospel. See, Christianity at its core, I've said this before too, Christianity at its core is a truth claim. Jesus here claims to be the Christ, the the hope for which even the Samaritans have been waiting. They've been looking for wrong things. They have an incomplete view of who the Christ will be, but they're waiting for a Messiah. Michael Horton, in his book, The The Gospel-Driven Life, he he says this. Listen very carefully to this quote. I really like this. He says, The greatest threat to Christians is never vigorous intellectual criticism, but a creeping senility, senile, creeping senility that transform truths into feelings, public claims into private experiences, and facts into mere values. Christianity is either true or false, but it's not irrational. That's exactly what Simon Peter proclaimed when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a claim that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. This claim as to the identity of Jesus It's not simply Peter's claim. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It wasn't just simply Peter who said that. It's Jesus' claim right here, right in verse 26. This is the rock upon which the church is built. I who speak to you am he. And this claim demands a response. And so look again at how she responded. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So how did she respond? Well, well, first, she left her water jar. I think that this is significant, possibly for a few different reasons. Now, we have to remember that the water jar is an important item in, in every household. Uh, most of us do not live without running water. Everyone then lived without running water. So the water jar was an important item in every household. In the days before indoor plumbing, they needed this jar. So I don't think it slipped her mind that she'd brought it with her when she left without it. Um, I have to think that she made the conscious decision to leave this heavy jar right there so that she could hurry as fast as she could into town. And it's clear from the context of this whole passage, she she had the clear intention of returning to the well, returning to Jesus with as many people as possible. 
Maybe she thought her boyfriend would carry it back for her. I don't know. But she had every intention of returning back to this point. I think that leaving the jar there is not only significant for its practical reasons, but also for the symbolism. She is, she is suddenly more interested in the living water than the well water that she needs to collect every day. That well and that jar will be right there when she returns. It'll be right there. That well will be right there next time she needs it. Tomorrow she will come back and get another jar load of water. Jesus might not be. He might not be there when she returns. For her, the time is urgent. Reminds me of that verse in Hebrews chapter 3. It's actually repeated twice in that same chapter in Hebrews 3. It's actually a quote from Psalm 95, and it says this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. Or or 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, We appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in Isaiah, so Paul is quoting Isaiah, In a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul says to the Corinthian church, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. Now is the day of salvation. Leave your water jar. Run to town. Tell everyone you see, Behold, now, today is the day of salvation. Well, some have seen an even deeper symbolism here in in leaving the water jar. They would say that she has abandoned her her old ceremonial forms of religion, replaced it in, in favor of worship in spirit and truth. I think there's some truth to that. It might be a little bit much. We have to remember that she really left her water jar there. It's not simply a metaphor. She's going to need that water jar later. She's going to need it later that same day. She's going to need it the next day and the day after that. But I do think this shows us the urgency that she found herself in. She left everything for the sake of witnessing, bearing witness for Jesus. She left everything. And then there's something else here. Back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when Jesus changed the water into wine, we saw in that passage that, that the water in that account was water that was used for ritual purification. But, but Jesus' gift is so much greater than any temporary cleansing, right? In the same way, Jesus' gift of living water is far greater than any water that Jacob's well could provide. But I want to kind of hit the brakes here for just a minute. Because I would characterize her response a little bit differently than than simply a desire to go and evangelize. In fact, I would label her response disbelief because of her question. Can this be the Christ? Now, I want to be clear. Disbelief is not unbelief. Okay? Disbelief is not unbelief. It's different. If she were unbelieving, she probably would have gone back into the town with the message, he is not the Christ. But she doesn't. She says, can this be the Christ? So instead, I I think I would characterize this response as a stunned disbelief. See, John here, in this passage, he he actually does not make it clear that she confessed Christ. Um, He seems to leave it up to each reader's own judgment. I think there is good evidence that she does confess Christ, but he doesn't actually say it. But what he does show is a a sudden change of heart, along with an eagerness to to bear witness for this man that she previously had many reasons to avoid. In fact, the imagery of these two verses, 28 and 29, paints a picture of a woman going around telling these things to everyone that she could find, rushing back to town. Come, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The one that we've all been waiting for? 
she even goes to the very people who looked down on her, which was probably most of the town, who had looked down on her for her scandalous lifestyle. She uses hyperbole to do it. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. It's not exactly true. But in her own thinking, even though she seemed to to change the subject as as quickly as she could when Jesus mentioned her sin, I I have no husband. In in her own mind, her, her messy, sinful, personal life was at the center of this conversation. When in reality, when we read it, it's almost an aside. Oh, I have no husband. Oh, you're right. Well, tell me about worship. She doesn't say, come and see the man who offered me living water and eternal life. Or come and see the man who explained true worship, who set me straight on our worship here on this mountain versus worship in Jerusalem at the temple Instead, she uses her own personal life to share her important question. Can this be the Christ? She was affected to the core in her heart. So obviously, she's excited. You can see this as she leaves the jar and heads to town, but she still seems to be hesitant. She's still in kind of this state of of stunned disbelief. And I think that this scene, um, I think it's a good reminder for us that God will often maybe even most of the time, he will use people with weak or undeveloped, even, even sometimes poor theology to proclaim the good news of Jesus as the Christ. That's what, that's what he's doing here. But these Samaritan townspeople, I think, would have heard a slightly different question than what we hear when we read this. Same words, can this be the Christ, but a little bit different meaning. In fact, there's probably a a step in between here that that we in the church, if we've grown up going to church and hearing these stories over and over again, I think that we miss this. So, So here's what I mean. Put yourself in the Samaritan's shoes. Can this be the Christ? Could a Jewish Messiah be for the Samaritans too? Could so much of what we had put our faith in as a people, the people of Samaria, could that be wrong? We have believed this for centuries. Could it be wrong? Do we have an insufficient view of who the Messiah will be? See, literally, as she goes back to her people, she asks the question kind of in the negative. She actually says, this couldn't be the Christ, could he? I believe at this point, she's not really confident in her faith, but I do think she's making progress. And frankly, we don't know, as I said, we don't know for certain if she comes to believe, to have a saving knowledge of Jesus as the Christ, and I don't think that's the point of this anyway. See, again, Jesus is using someone that the Jews despised to bear witness about him. And look up or look over at verse 36. In verse 36, he had said to the disciples, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. This is her. She's in town sowing and reaping and, and literally, literally bringing people to Christ. Come, see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Oh, he's out by the well. Come on, come with me. She's bringing people to Christ. Yet this woman, as we have seen over the past few weeks, because of who she is, she's got three strikes against her. She's a Samaritan, whom the Jews despised. She's a woman who could not testify in court that he was the Christ. And, and she has a bad reputation. So even her own people don't really want anything to do with her. And Jesus tells his disciples, behold, lift up your eyes and see. Look, she's out there reaping, sowing and reaping. The point here is that Christ used this woman 
We don't know her name. Christ used this woman to draw a city to himself. Look, look back at verse 30. They, that is, those of the city, went out of the town and were coming to him. Jump over to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, which was, he told me all that I ever did. We need to remember, it's not the quality of the witness. <laughs> it's, the, it's the object of the witness that ultimately matters. She's pointing at Christ. I don't understand it. Is this, is this who we think it is? Can this be the Christ? Now, this is not to say that the training and discipleship is not important. Um, I believe, for example, I believe that most pastors and missionaries need formal education in order to proclaim faithfully God's word. I believe that we should be growing as a church, and we are. The disciples are being trained by Christ, even in this. Uh, That's what's happening in verses uh, 30 to 39. He is training them, 31 to 38. He's training them. He's teaching them. He's preparing them for what they will face when they get to the book of Acts. And he sends them from Judea to Samaria and even the ends of the earth. He's preparing them. He's preparing them for planting churches, for making disciples, for extensive preaching, for facing persecution and so forth. And the Samaritan woman, her mission was simple. Come and see. Come and see. Christ will use each of us to the measure entrusted to us. So look at the response of the people in this Samaritan town. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When we looked at the exposition, a portion of this text where Jesus explains all of this to his disciples. He tells them to to see that the fields are white for harvest. And then very possibly, if they really looked up, and he told them three times, he said, behold, look up and see. So if they really looked up, if they really looked out, they would have seen Samaritans walking out of the town toward them. But notice the progression of the belief of these Samaritan people. At first, they believe because of the woman's testimony. That's verse 39. And I believe that we should not downplay this. In Scripture, the witness of ordinary people is not looked down upon. In fact, Jesus will commission them to go and witness for him. So John chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Jesus, uh, John the Apostle writes of John the Baptist. He says, he came to... Uh, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. This was John the Baptist's God-ordained role, to bear witness of the coming Messiah, to point people to Christ. Later, in, in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus will establish the witness of the apostles as their primary task to bear witness, even, he says, alongside the Holy Spirit. So Jesus explains to them, he says, But when the Helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. This is their role and their task. And then in his, in his high priestly prayer, as he is praying for the disciples and, and all of the church, really, in, in John 17, uh, in verses 20 and 21, Jesus will pray for those who will believe based on the testimony of others. So this is his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The personal testimony is an important tool that Jesus uses to draw people to himself. That's what, that's what she is saying here. Can this be the Christ? Come see a man who, who told me all that I ever did. But the roots of our faith must be deeper and stronger than merely based on the testimony of others. We can see this in verse 41. But first, look at what John tells us happened in the middle of this. In verse 40, this helps explain really what's happening here. Look at verse 40 again. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What what could cause this centuries-old divide between the Jews and the Samaritans to just disappear like that? All of the sudden, these Samaritans are offering this Jewish man, and presumably his disciples as well, although it doesn't say, but we have to assume that they were included in this. All of a the sudden, they're offering him hospitality. But even more than that, they're, they're genuinely becoming disciples of his. They wouldn't step foot in each other's nations unless they had to. And here they are united with him and united with his disciples. Paul will explain this phenomenon over in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over to Ephesians 2. This division between Jews and non-Jews, really. Paul is speaking specifically of Gentiles, and Samaritans were half Jewish, but they were considered by the Jews to be Gentiles. In verse 11, Paul says this, right after explaining the gospel in the first 10 verses, one of the most clear articulations of the gospel in Scripture. And then in verse 11, Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how the views views, the Jews viewed all Gentiles, including the Samaritans. That's how they viewed them. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that is, Gentiles and Samaritans, peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. He creates an entirely new people, a people for his own possession. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, Paul will put it like this. He says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
the Samaritan people wanted nothing more than to be called children of God. The Samaritan people wanted nothing more than to be called children of God. They so desperately wanted to be a part of the family of God, and the Jews had vehemently denied them that. But God, but Christ Jesus, when he had to go to Samaria, and he got thirsty, and he sat down at the well, and a Samaritan woman, unnamed, approaches him, approaches the well, and he says, give me a drink. He broke down this dividing wall of hostility. But to all who did receive him, who invited him into their town, invited them into their homes, invited him into their lives, who asked him to stay with them, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Can you see the second step here of their belief? They had believed because of her testimony, and now they were hearing directly from him. And he was there in their home. He was giving them living water. He was teaching them about eternal life. He has made them true worshipers. He has given them the right to be called children of God. And then verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. So Jesus goes to town with them. And again, presumably his disciples are there as well. And he spends two days teaching and preaching, and many more heard the word of Christ and believed. This is more than the initial group who went out to see him at the well, who heard her testimony and followed. Probably there were some who didn't believe the woman, yet they believed when they heard Christ. Maybe there were some in town who didn't hear her testimony at all, but only heard from Jesus. But regardless, many more believed because of his word. Look at this third step of their belief. So the first step is that they believed because of her testimony. Then they stopped what they were doing and they went to directly hear from him. And then the third step is their belief is now based not on her testimony, but on his word. Her testimony was the beginning, but now they had moved onto a more sure, more reliable basis of faith. Jesus's own word. Do you know that Peter actually tells us the same thing? He says, don't believe this just because I'm telling it to you. Believe be based on God's word. I'll show you. In in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 16, Peter says this. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, when we preached to you the gospel, these aren't just myths that we made up. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's talking here about the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Peter was there. They heard God say those things. We were with him on the holy mountain. You can read about this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In each of their gospels, they recount the transfiguration. But Peter continues, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as a a lamp shining in a dark place. Till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, with a lot of words, the exact same things as verse 42 says. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Peter is saying, Don't believe just because you're hearing me tell you these fantastic stories, and they're fantastic. Believe 
because of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Believe because of the Word. This is the progression of true discipleship. As we grow, we begin to more and more recognize Jesus' voice. He will say the sheep follow Him. They know His voice. These new disciples, they're in no way denigrating her testimony. They're actually confirming it. We have heard for ourselves. Their faith is now based on the word of Christ, on the word of God. And then they make this incredible confession. This is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just for the Jews, not just for the Samaritans, but all who would confess this truth will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So now think about our response, about your response to his claims. Remember, she left behind her water jar. Jesus Jesus actually calls us to leave everything behind and follow him. He says this type of thing several times in the Gospels, but one of them is Luke chapter 9. The end of that chapter, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I have no doubt that at some point, this woman went back to the well and picked up her jar. (laughs) But look at what they all left behind in reality here. Both the woman and the townspeople, they left one thing behind that that they had in common. It was their pride. They left that behind. She says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? All that I ever did. All my sin and shame. This woman who went to the well at the sixth hour, at noon, in the heat of the day, and the only reason she would have done that would be to avoid other people. She did not want to talk about her sin and shame. She tried to change the subject when Jesus said, go get your husband. Well, let's not talk about that. I don't don't have a husband. All I ever did. She's now in town sharing her testimony with anyone who would listen. Her pride is gone. Her pride is gone. She has left that. Or the response of the townspeople in verse 42. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is an acknowledgement of their error as Samaritans and a submission to worship in spirit and in truth. When they say Savior of the world, they mean anybody who will believe, Jew and Gentile. It's not just for the Samaritans. It's for anyone. Both of them left their pride. They were wrong. They had sinned. And several times in Scripture, we read these simple, simple words. It's, it's several times this is repeated. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think what they gained, what they left behind, was their pride. And because they were now humble, God bestowed on them grace. Humility works itself out as repentance. Our response to Christ's claim really can only be repentance and humility. And when they 
when they came to him like that, he gave these Samaritans, those who were not a part of God's covenant people, those who could not be called his children, he gave them the right to become children of God, to be their father. The father is seeking such people to worship him. When Jesus, it says that he had to pass through Samaria, he had, he had an appointment with this woman and he used her to bring a whole town to himself, a town of Samaritans, to save them. This is what he does. This is who the God is that we worship. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that you would humble us, that we would leave our pride Not just, not just talk about our sin, but talk about our Savior. Can this be the Christ? But that we wouldn't stay in that stunned disbelief, but that we would be able to say and proclaim, this is indeed the Savior of the world. That we can boldly, boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. That we would share with anyone who would listen that we would be willing to leave behind everything because now we have living water, eternal life, and we have been called the children of God. And you have given us that right. And so God, we praise you today. We thank you. We thank you for the hope. I pray that our hope that our hope would live out in our lives, that we would have the opportunity and take the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is within us, that your name would be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.